I'm glad you're here. Like I said, it beats being here alone. Um, the, uh, the truth is, we, we, it's interesting with the weather because our numbers were down the last three weeks because of weather. But what's interesting to me is it's been kind of different people. So I don't know if the weather pattern we can different people another week. I'm not sure how, how it all works. But like, I'd be like, oh, they're here. Oh, no, they're not this week. And so three weeks in a row, I was joking with James before. I said, you realize, James, that you better really hit them hard with the offer. I was kidding, please, <laughs> with the offering this morning because some of the people haven't had the opportunity to give in three weeks, so they're probably feeling exceptionally generous. <laughs> but um, seriously, I am glad you're back. I'm glad that we're here. Speaking of back, why don't you stand up real quickly? Give a little wave. Those, some of you may know our friend. Some of you may not. She has been in Cyprus. I, I should have planned ahead. I don't want you to share today just because I didn't even ask. She flew in last night at like 11 o'clock at night. But this is um, a missionary that we partner with, that we support. This is Linda. And um, she's come back from Cyprus. And for now, she's going to be stateside for a little while. So I hope that we're going to see more of her. But if you get an opportunity today, she is on our, you know, we made the little bookmarks that have our missionaries you can pray for. Continue to pray for her as she adapts back to our culture and our life here. There's probably some needs that she may have. Um, I'm actually going to ask her for a list of, like, household things. I get every so often somebody says, hey, do you know anyone that needs a couch? Or do you know somebody that needs dishes? So I'm going to actually have her put together a list over the next couple of weeks. And um, if you say, hey, Jeff, I might have some household items. I'm just going to try to connect her and you or that list and you but this is Linda make sure many of you don't know her because she has been gone how, how many years has it been five four and a half so I was thinking five four and a half years she's been gone and she's come home once a year but many of you haven't got a chance to meet her so today your assignment is to make sure that you meet her don't expect her to remember your name you just remember hers and then over the next few weeks let's invite her out for coffee for lunch for breakfast to your home, let's let her know that this is still her family and this is still her church and uh, welcome her back. So, thank you. I'm sorry, what, Linda? What? Oh, she's staying at, at Philomarisis. So, anyway, the next few days, if you guys want to connect with her over the next month. Thank you, Linda. Go ahead and grab a seat. Um, last week, I started a series on judges and I'm not going to redo the entire thing, but if you really want to in-depth look. Make sure you grab the uh, the tape because, or the CD, I guess they are now, because it has some stuff that you may care about. But I went over the authorship, the history, why the book was written. I covered a lot of different details. And in covering that, I covered really a ton of stuff. But here's the key thing. The book of Judges is oftentimes misunderstood in the sense that people look and say, oh yeah, that's about God's judgment on Israel and God's judgment on other people. And in reality, it's not. The book is not actually about judgment at all. The book is about the people who led Israel between the time Joshua dies and the time that they establish a monarchy. And here's the beauty of this book. It's about ordinary people that he uses to do extraordinary things. It's about everyday people who lived there that he used to really show his grace on the people. It wasn't about judgment. 
It's about God's redemptive plan from the very beginning of time. And too often times, we think God was just totally stumped when Adam and Eve sinned. And then the whole Old Testament is him trying to figure out what to do until Jesus comes. But it wasn't. He knew from the moment he created man that you guys are a bunch of dirty sinners. You are. You're a bunch of filthy sinners. The difference is some of us recognize it and recognize our need for a Savior. That's the difference between us and anyone else. That's the difference between us and the worst tyrannical person that you can think of is the fact that you at some point recognize you need a savior. Because without him, who are we? None of us can stand holy and blameless before God, and yet he invites us to do that through his son. So this book really isn't about his judgment. It's about his redemptive plan that says, no matter how far you go, no matter how often you walk away, you can always come back to me. The main theme of the book that we'll cover every week for the next about five weeks is this. The spiral of failure, sin, idolatry, they all led to destruction. But hope comes through repentance. You're never too far gone for God to bring you back. God continually calls out to his people, no matter what idols they set up, no matter what things they'd done, no matter where they were, no matter how dark it was, God continues to call out to them and call them back and say, there's a place for you here. No matter how far down that you've gone, or maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe one of your kids has walked away. Maybe your parents don't know. No matter how far away they are, he's calling and saying, there's a place for you. There's a place for you. That place is resting in who God is. And every story in this book is rich, and it's a picture of God's compassion for his people. But we can't cover every story, although I do suggest, especially if you have young kids at home, read the story of Ehud in chapter 3. It's a good one. (laughs) Shamgar, it only gives us one verse, and that says, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an axe goad, and he also delivered Israel. That's it. That's all we got for Shamgar. But then we go into Deborah, and that's where we're picking up today. Chapter 4 of Judges, starting in verse 1, it says, When Ehud was dead... The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. When I look at the original text, just so you know, God didn't actually go and make a bargain and get like, okay, I'll take this much cattle. He just, what it really means is he allowed them to be taken away from him, fully knowing it was their free will. What he's saying is he let them walk away. He could have sent a bunch of angels to stand and say, if you don't worship me, I'll kill you. But he doesn't. He does the same thing with them that he did with us that we hate so much. He lets us walk away. Which, when we want to choose what we want to do, it's fine. But when somebody does it to us, we really hate it. Why is evil in the world? Because God gave man free will. And why do you sin? Why do you continue to gossip or lie or watch pornography or do any of the other things that are destructive to our soul? Why? Because God gave you free will and you can choose to do what you want. You're no different than the people here. So, he sold them to Jabin, king of Canaan, who who reigned in Hazor. The commander of the army was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth, Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. I'm going to stop right there. It talks about the size of his army, and what he did, and the people cry out to him. And I told you over and over and over throughout this book, you'll see the people cry out to God. God releases them, 
and freeze them. They walk for a period of time, and then they go right back to doing what they were doing before. And you wonder, why didn't they learn from our past, their past? Why didn't they learn from history? And all I can say is, why don't we? Why do we repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again? This isn't meant to slam or criticize anybody. We've all had different situations in our life. But I am going to use this statistic. That's a fake statistic. 50% of marriages end in divorce. But did you know only 34% of first marriages end in divorce? The reason we have such a high divorce rate is second marriages are two times more likely to end in divorce. Third marriages, eight times more likely. Fourth marriages, 90% more likely to end in divorce. So it's because people get married two and three and four times. And you look and you say, well, isn't it 50%? Actually, about 37% actually end in, or get divorced, 63% stay together. Because we don't learn, again, this isn't, I'm not trying to slam anybody, but sometimes we go through something and we repeat the very same mistakes again. And then we fix it. And you know what we do? We repeat the very same mistakes again. Because we repent, but we don't change. And repentance, true repentance, is about changing the things that need to change in us so that we don't repeat the same mistakes. And whatever area of sin that is in your life, if you want to stop it, you have to change your habits. I have a friend who was a smoker, a heavy smoker, three to four packs a day. And they decided to quit smoking. But every morning they'd get up, the first thing they'd do, in fact, they would get up in the middle of the night just to have a cigarette somewhere between 2 and 3 a.m. They'd get up at about 6 a.m., get their kids up, get them ready for school, sit down, have a cup of coffee and a cigarette. And the day they decided to stop smoking, they get their kids up as normal. They're a little edgy. And they pour their cup of coffee. And they took a drink. And they start reaching. And realized, oh, wait, I'm not smoking. They didn't think about it. They sit there. They do whatever. Read the page. They took a drink of their coffee and started reaching for their cigarette. Like, literally, they said they were reaching for it. And then they'd look down and remember, oh, I'm not smoking. This went on for the next 20 or 30 minutes until they realized, you know what? I can no longer sit down, read the paper, and have a morning cup of coffee. They changed their whole pattern. And what they did was they found a little local coffee shop that didn't allow smoking inside it. And so they would get up, get their kids ready, take their kids to school, then go somewhere else just to have their morning cup of coffee to change the pattern. If you want different outcomes, you have to change the pattern. If you want to change those things in your life, you have to change the pattern. The problem was they didn't want to be stuck They didn't want to be slaves. They didn't want to be trampled under. But they didn't want to change the pattern of what they were doing. So here's where we have Deborah. The people have walked away from God, but Deborah goes and she sits daily settling disputes under a tree. People would come to her and ask her for insight and wisdom. And two people that had a fence against each other would come and say, here's my side, here's their side. And she would basically give a ruling. She's so well known in the area that they actually... She's so well known for her wisdom and her fairness in the community that they call it the Tree of Deborah. So, oh yeah, that's the Tree of Deborah. That's where you go to have disputes settled. So, time goes on and she calls Barak and she reminds him that God had called him to raise an army. God had called him to raise an army not because they want to fight, but because they want to be free. And there's a difference. You can be a person of aggression, or you can be a person who longs for justice. Sometimes they look the same, but your desired outcome is very different. 
Deborah looks in and says, it's time to bring justice and freedom to our people. So understand that the battle in this era, era is very different than what we would see today. It would have been very much more of a hand-to-hand combat, almost like the picture of where you see in Braveheart, where they would have used anything they could for a weapon, and they would have fashioned basic garden implements and things like that so that they could have weapons. And he begins to raise this army up, but only if Deborah will go with him. And she tells him, that's fine, but if I go with you and you don't do what God called you to do, you will not receive the glory for this battle. You will not be known as the leader. So she agrees to go with him. And the army of Jabin, who, as I mentioned earlier, was the king of Canaan. He's their oppressor. His general is Sisera. And it tells us how many thousands of chariots they have. And how many horses. And everything that they have to go to battle with. And the Israelites have their garden implements that they've made into weapons. So they're outnumbered. They're outweaponed, they're outmanned, and yet they're going to do what God has called them to do, which is to be free. So they go to battle, and despite superior firepower and superior weapons, they're defeated, and Sisera, the general, escapes. And he goes to Habar, and there he meets a woman named Jael. And Jael is a woman whose husband has a treaty, and it's supposed to be safe land. She invites him to hide in her tent, makes a bed for him, gives him a drink, and once he's asleep, she drives a tent peg through his head. Wow, she's not very nice. Says it's so deep that it goes into the ground beneath his temple. She's strong, she's committed, she's determined, and she recognizes what God has done. Gentlemen, be careful who you side with. And if a strange woman invites you into her tent, say no. (laughs) The thing is, the king of Canaan, King Jabin, is still out there. But it tells us in the scripture that his army was so weakened that day due to the defeat that Israel was no longer under his authority and eventually they go back to battle with him again and defeat him. Chapter 5 is a song that Deborah and Barak sing. It's a song of freedom and it's a song of hope. It's a song that tells the story of the battle. And one of the best parts in all of this, if you look at the very end of chapter 5, the very last line it says, so the land had rest for 40 years. For 40 years they're free. And sometimes we read this and as you read it, you just... Glance over that because you immediately, if you go into chapter 6, see, oh look, the children of Israel are being oppressed again. Because guess what? For 40 years, they had that peace, but they became complacent. And it becomes so much easier to just live however I want than to continue to walk with God day after day after day. And the same thing happens in our life. And again, this isn't criticism, it's observation. But I can't tell you how many people I saw over the years that had their children in church. You know, I've talked oftentimes about when people walk away from the church. They walk away right after they're out of high school and college, and then they get married, then they have a kid, and then they're like, oh man, what do I do? 
I don't want my kid to be bad. I want my kid to be raised with morals. I want my kid to be raised with values. And they'll come back into the church. By the way, I celebrate them every time. Come on. Every one of you that walked away, come back. You're welcome here. I love you and I want you here. And so then they, they do this. And here's the pattern of people. They walk. And so they, they're there for 18, 20 years. They raise their kids in the church. And then their kid moves out, the last one. And they're like, wouldn't it be nice to just go away for a day? We don't really have many days. Let's go away on a Sunday. And then one Sunday stretches into 14, 15, 18 years. Then they retire, and they realize one of two things. One, I got a lot of time on my hands. What am I going to do? And two, oh, no, I better cram for the final exam. I'm dying soon, and I don't want God to go, no, you failed. So they come back to the church. By the way, I welcome them back. All retirees, come on back. You're wanted. You're welcome here. But we do the same thing, and that's our pattern. And I saw it over and over and over when I was a youth pastor. I would see these families, and I would develop deep relationships. I was a youth pastor for 17 years. I had kids that were in my youth group who had kids that were in my youth group. That's how long I did it. I did weddings for kids that had been in my youth group, baby dedications. I would watch them grow up, and I would walk through life with them and tell them, don't follow that same pattern. And yet over and over and over, I saw kids who would be fully engaged and they'd get out of high school and life got hard and questions got asked and they weren't prepared or they weren't strong enough or they weren't dedicated enough to say, no, I can't. And Sundays are a priority for me to be in church and life changes. And I go back to the church where I was. I was just back there at Christmas and I see two or three or four kids. I had a hundred plus kids between junior high, high school and college. And there's a remnant that's there. And some of those kids, they've moved away. I know that. And some of them are in other churches. I know that too. But there's just this fragment, this remnant, because it's the same pattern that's been repeated over and over and over. And the same thing is true in our lives. We get right with God, we commit and we rededicate, and then things get hard and things get complicated and questions get asked and God doesn't show up the way I thought he would and bad things happen and we go, where's God? Why do I have cancer? Where's God? Why is my marriage a mess? Where's God? Why is this or this or this? I've been faithful. I did what I was supposed to and we feel like God owes us something. And the reality is we're in this broken world full of broken people and God owes us nothing and yet he continues to call out to you, come back to me come back to me, come back to me, because he's got a place for us. Here's the lessons I learned from this this week. Number one, God hears us no matter what I've done, no matter where I'm at, when I call out. And even though we put ourselves in that negative place, God wants to lift us out. In spite of our inability to continue to walk with God, and we repeat the same patterns, and we repeat the same sins, God continues to reach out and to call out and to want us back. And sometimes I'm like, God, you don't know how bad I am. You don't know how broken I am. You don't know what a mess I am, God. I know you see everything, but you don't really understand my heart. And yet he looks at me and he says, but I love you and I want you back. And I'm telling you now, if God can call out to me, a broken and defective person who doesn't even deserve to stand in a pulpit and look at me and say, I want you back then he's calling out to every one of you because there's nothing that you've done that can separate you from his love. The second lesson, not all those who he calls, obviously, choose to follow. 
But those who choose to follow, he will always use you. He always has a plan and a purpose. And I think the bigger issue is some of us don't doubt he has a plan and a purpose. We just don't like it. It scares us. It's too much for us. It overwhelms us. We're not willing to do that. He wants us to do, I want to be up front, and he wants me to clean. I don't want to clean. I don't want to be the one vacuuming the church. Nobody even notices that. I don't want to be the one who has to go door to door and invite people. That's icky. I don't want to be weird. We don't like what we're called to do. I think that's the greater issue for most of us. Because we're called to be humble, and we're called to start at the bottom. And it's not, the, the, the org chart to God is not up. God's up here, and then us, and then all the other people. The org chart to God is flat. He sits in the center, and it's a circle, and goes out like ripples in a pond. And there's not a hierarchy or a lower. It's a, we're all even. We just have different gifts, different skills, and different things we're called to do. And the question is, are you going to say yes to what you're called to? And even more importantly, are you going to say yes to what opportunities there are? Because some people, I've told people, hey, I'd love to see you, be, you know, join us on our prayer team. I don't feel called to that. And I'm like, wait, you don't feel called to prayer or you don't feel called to team? Because either one of those are pretty much things we're all called to. People say, well, how can I be involved? And almost always, my first thing I say is, start showing up for pre-service prayer because that's where our influencers in our church come out of. And yet people don't want to do that. I know because there's usually two or three of us in there. Maybe four people. And I look at our size congregation, and I know we all have different things, and some of you are trying to just get kids here, and believe me, I understand that. Some of you are just trying to get here yourself, going, Jeff, it's a miracle that I make it. Don't ask me to show up 45 minutes early. I won't. But for others of you, maybe God's asking you to take a step up in what you're doing in your leadership and in your involvement and in your connection to our church. And maybe it starts with, you know what, Jeff, on the first Sunday of the month, I'm going to show up early for prayer and I'm going to pray for that people connect through communion. On the last Sunday, every time there's a fifth Sunday, I will commit That's four times a year. I can do four times a year. I'll show up early. I don't know, because God's calling you to do things. I'm just saying, hey, maybe this is where we start. God uses those outside of his people to fulfill his glory when they're willing. Jael was not an Israelite. She was not in this battle, but she saw that these were the people of God and they were being oppressed. And she says, you know what? I'm willing to be used. And my skill is putting a tent peg into the ground. We all got skills. She was not even one of them, and yet God uses her to free his people. Fourth lesson learned. The goal was to give God the glory, not simply win a battle. If the goal was just to win a battle... He could have brought in a storm. He could have blinded the people. He did all kinds of things. Sandstorm could have come, buried them, wiped them all out. They never would have been seen again. Giant volcano. All it would have been was a bunch of people like Pompeii, and they would have gone, ooh, what an interesting historical thing. But God wanted to use his people to show the glory of who he was to those around them. The fifth thing, people always return to sin. God has no grandchildren. It's a saying I've used oftentimes with my, when I was a youth pastor. Either you choose to follow or you don't. 
but just because your parents are Christians doesn't give you the free ticket. And too many people have relied on and lived on, well, my grandma was practically a saint, so I'm good. Your grandma may have been a saint. Believe me, you took the opposite route. God has no grandchildren. He looks at you and he loves you like a child, like his child. You're called and you're invited and you're welcomed and you're wanted. And he has a plan and a purpose for every one of you. And he looks and he wants you and he calls you and he draws you close to him. And you know what? That scares some of us because we had a bad situation with our father. We had an abusive father, an absent father, a non-existent father. And the idea that God is my father scares some people. We had fathers who had unrealistic expectations. We had fathers who were demanding. And yet God is a good, good, good father. And he has nothing for you but love and acceptance and hope and forgiveness. And that's what he's offering. And he's saying, come because this is for you. I'm doing this for you. And we have to understand that people will always return to their sin. But God continues to call us. Every generation has to choose. The church is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. They say in 20 years, which, man, I'm still supposed to be working then. In 20 years, less than 10% of churches will have a full-time pastor. Why? Because there just aren't enough churches? No, because there's, churches are going to continue to shrink. And the small ones will get smaller and smaller. The big ones will continue to probably grow, but overall number will be gone. The number of churches in America is, believe it or not, rapidly shrinking. Because the number of people who go to church in America is rapidly shrinking. And I've heard thousands of times people tell me, well, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. I can connect with God in nature. You're right, you can. But you know what? One of the things that God taught us over and over, you cannot know God outside of community. I'm not talking about whether or not you get in heaven when you die if you didn't go to a church. That's a different situation. But if you want to maximize who God created you to become and who he wants you to be, You have to be in that community because he has ways for you to know him when you're in community. And I've told many people, if this isn't the right church for you, God bless you. I will help you find another one. I've had people move away and I say, check out this church or this church. I know these and I trust them. Because I don't believe we are the only one, but I believe there is something of great value when we corporately gather together to worship the God we say we believe even when it's hard because the people around you make you mad. They let you down. They disappoint you. Jeff, you don't know what that person does. I saw them. So what? I don't really care what that person does. Because you know what? If they told me what they did, I'm going to hug them and love them. And if they don't tell me what they did, you know what? I'm going to hug them and love them. So it doesn't matter to me what they did. I'm going to offer unconditional love to the greatest of my ability because that's what Jesus has called us to do. Not to look and say, that person's a bad sinner you know what? I'm a really good sinner, so I understand how sin works. I'm really, really good at it. The final lesson I learned from this is we choose to walk away. Humanity chooses over and over. Doubt, fear, boredom, anxiety, silence. The church doesn't make you happy. The church lets you down. The church is no better than whatever group you want to say. You know what? You're right, and I'll say it every time. The church is imperfect because we're a bunch of people that don't have a clue what we're doing, but we're trying to serve a living and loving God, but we fail at it over and over and over again because we have our own agenda and our own ideas, and if we didn't have any of that, then would the Holy Spirit really be working in us? Because he's working in us to meet the needs of those around us, but sometimes we still fail at that. 
So we allow doubt and fear and boredom and anxiety, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to get in our way, and we choose to go a different way. If God's real, why doesn't he prove himself to me? Why does a God of the universe have to prove anything to you, you little peon? How arrogant are you that you need God to give you a sign? I'm not saying he won't, but the arrogance of believing he needs to give you a sign? And I've had many people tell me, well, if God would give me a sign. If God gives you a sign, you're probably going to be so overwhelmed and blown away. It says Moses, a man who walked with God, saw the backside of God and was bleached white. What is he going to do to you? Stop looking for a sign and start saying, you know what? It is my own boredom. It is my own fear. It is my own insecurity. I'm going to choose to follow God. Our kids, our neighbors, our friends, those around us are watching to see, is it real? Do we really believe it? Or is it just something we do out of habit? Because if it's real, the way I approach it is going to be different. It doesn't become something I just do. It becomes who I am and how I live. So here's my conclusions. I have two questions today. Can our outcome be any different than Israel's? As a community and as a culture, even as a lumping all of Christianity together, nope, we're going to do the same thing. And the spiral's going to continue. But here's the difference. You as an individual person can choose to never walk away. Deborah chooses to go and dispense wisdom at a tree because there was no palace, there was no courthouse, there was no building. But she asks God and she seeks God and the Holy Spirit illuminates to her and she's a woman in medieval times and people were going to her. It bucked the culture. It challenged authority. They're in the midst of being oppressed and held under someone else and yet she still does it and she doesn't care what the culture around her says. She's going to stand up for what she knows is right. Can our outcome be different? You're going to watch the church continue to shrink. It's going to happen. But we as individual people, we as an individual congregation, we as an individual group don't have to take that same path. Some people will say, it must be really hard to pastor a church in Washington. Isn't it the least church state in the nation? And it's actually, I think it's third right now, percentage of people-wise that go to church. And I say it's the greatest place in the world to pastor, and here's why. Because where there's darkness, even a little light shines. Go to the south, to the Bible Belt. I have friends that are pastors down there. Their churches are big, but there's no difference in society and culture. Texas has more churches than any other state. Texas also has more strip clubs and nudie bars than any other state. All right, so has the church impacted the culture or not? I don't know. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just saying it's interesting. Interesting little trivia bit for you. Are we impacting culture or not? Because here, if I go to church, it's outside the norm of society. My son-in-law grew up in Kansas. He came up here. We were going to go somewhere. He said, well, should we call the see- on a Sunday afternoon for lunch? Should we call to see if they're open? I was like, what? Well, maybe that restaurant might not be open. I was like, oh, trust me, it's open. 
We got there, he goes, have you been here before? I was like, no, but I've lived here long enough to know. Just because it's Sunday, things don't close. Where he's at, in town, restaurants weren't allowed to be open. He had to go just outside the city limits to find their restaurant that's open. And yet, his town in Kansas, no greater percentage of people who are following God. The world isn't on fire. It's not the center for all the move of the Holy Spirit. The society is different. But there's no change in the individual people. When people are in total darkness and they see the light, either makes them mad or they go to explore and investigate. Those are their two options. Let's be the light that people see. So can our outcome be different? I don't know that we can stop the tide of what's going on in our nation, but what I know we can do is love our community so well that they know that there's a place where the light continues to shine. Second question. What will I sacrifice to follow God in difficult circumstances? There's lots of challenges. It will be difficult. Commitment takes something on your part. We don't always get to do what we want. I've had people leave church because they don't get to be in charge of a certain ministry. Breaks my heart. But I've got to do what I feel like God is telling us to do. I've had people leave church because they don't want to do A or B or C. And for the most part, I don't make people. We are called to sacrifice sometimes what we want to do for the greater good of the kingdom. Faith is designed so that we believe in spite of the situation, not because God gave us a sign or the situation was easy. In spite of the challenges I face, in spite of the doubts, in spite of the anxiety, in spite of the fear, I choose to believe. And if I'm going to choose to believe, that's going to impact and change the way I live. that's hard. It's really hard. And the person who tells you it's easy is either delusional or misunderstands the reality of the world we live in. There's a book a few years back called Christianity Made Simple, Believe. And I read the book. I mean, it's from the 70s, the original version. They've updated it a few times. And every, I've read it twice, actually. And both times I read it, I thought, you're not taking into account that we live in this world and if it was really that simple nobody would have ever walked away from Jesus and yet they did the very disciples walked away from Jesus Judas denies him and sells him out Peter denies Thomas doubts and these are the ones that walked with him now you're going to tell me it's simpler for us than it is for them 2,000 years removed in a different context in a different world in a different society in a different place no it isn't I'm not saying it's the hardest it's ever been in history. I don't believe that we're being persecuted right now. But I don't believe it's simple. But I do believe it's possible, and that's where faith comes in. Are we going to exercise our faith and choose to do this or not? That's the question. Father God, I thank you for the fact that you are a redemptive God. And no matter what we've done or where we've gone, you keep calling out to us. You offer us hope. You offer us redemption. You desire for us to be in relationship with you. 
May we know that and understand that. May that become real in our lives. And as we live that out in difficult times, in times of struggle and challenge, in times of turmoil, as we live that out, God, let it become real. Let it change our attitude towards others. Let our love for others be unconditional. In your name, amen. A couple quick things next week if you want to read ahead to be prepared. The story is about Gideon. It's also in Judges. And um, James is going to bring the message on Gideon next week. I will be in Russia. I leave tomorrow for nine days, eight days. It's kind of weird because there's some travel days, so I never know quite how to count it. Um, my trip over there takes me 22 hours. My trip home was like 19. So be praying. Uh, here's some specifics you can pray for. I'm speaking five times while I'm there. So I speak, I get there on uh, Tuesday night. I speak Wednesday night, Friday night, Sunday, Saturday night, Sunday night, and Monday night. And then I fly home, I think, on Wednesday morning. So just be praying that God would use the message I have for people I don't even know, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate things to me to speak, would illuminate things in their heart. Um, Obviously, I appreciate prayers for safety and for my family as well while I'm away. And uh, know that I will be praying for you. You are valued and loved. And I'm not going because I don't love you. I'm going because I want to see if this is a ministry that that our church would partner with in the future. So thanks so much. John, are you coming up to announce your retirement? John retired on Friday, people. Yes, I'm not sure to do that. Okay. But thank you. <laughs> I think we need to pray for our pastor right now. Thank you. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for our pastor, Jeff, Lord. We thank you for his, his willingness to go to other countries, Lord, to share his faith, Lord, to be a light, to be an encouragement to the people of Russia. We thank you, Lord God, for his connections there. Pray that he have safe travels there, safe travels there, and safe travels back. And we, we're excited, Lord, for hearing of the awesome testimony of what happened while he was there, Lord. But keep him safe. Let him know how much he's loved and cared for here at our church. Lord, we thank you so much for our pastor. Lord, we thank you for his sensitivity, his willingness, his wisdom, especially, though, his willingness to travel afar and be a vessel for you. Lord, we just pray that you keep him safe, keep him from harm, keep him healthy. Pray for safe travel. Pray, Lord, too, that his words would be your words and that they would sink deeply into the hearts of those listeners there, Lord. Then he'd be a, a true blessing. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I just pray for a special anointing on him, Lord. A mantle, your mantle of blessing on him, Lord. I pray, Lord, that he will know that you are with him every step of the way that he goes. Lord, that he is in tune with your voice that he hears your voice clearly in a place maybe that, that might be dark, Lord. I just hear that he that I just pray that he would hear and listen 
and be able to read between the lines, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that he would make an impact on these people there, Lord, that there would be a new beginning for these people, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that, um, yes, that you have called him to go. And, Lord, it, that he heard that call, Lord, that he's going to go. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you for the calling. We thank you for the response. And, Father, we lift up the people that Jeff is going to be ministering to. And like any good, far, any good farmer prepares the ground before the seed is planted, Lord, we thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit that's preparing the hearts and the minds of the people that Jeff is going to be ministering to so that the seed will go in, the seed will be fertile, and the seed will produce to the glory of your name, Father. Thank you so much, you guys. I really do appreciate your love and prayers and support. And um, so make sure that you don't avoid coming out next week. Come on out. If it snows, come early and shovel because I won't be around to do that. Um, but, uh, yeah, come on out next week. Be a part of the church. Support James and um, build community with one another. Thanks for coming out. We'll see you guys again real soon.